Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Yes, you are. <laughs> I can hear the vacation in your voice, my dear. It took me until the middle of this week to stop having daily anxiety attacks, but now I'm really enjoying vacation. yes and listeners we are recording this a little bit in advance so you're hearing the joy in brenna's voice but she's secretly been like this for a couple of weeks (laughs) it's really nice i've taken an extended chunk of time off because i have to (laughs) they're making me vacation days being what they are in a university if you don't take them they disappear so i have to take them yeah and i think for your mental health it's probably a good thing you know i didn't realize how burnt out i was until i stopped so that's funny because I did. <laughs> Not to say that you ever have given less than 100% when we chat, but just the stories you were telling me, it's like, this lady needs a vacation, like nobody's business. And also, I mean, it was getting to the point where it was taking me like four and a half days to respond to your texts. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing that was, a, that was a sign as well. I just thought you didn't like me. <laughs> I like you. I just wasn't a fan of like the world. Right. So no, it's good. I am starting to relax. And I actually got to read this book at a leisurely pace over several days, which was a real joy. And I think it changed my perception of it, which is good. And I've been like baking and that's it. Like nothing. Just chillaxing. Chillaxing. The Groot and I have been hanging out a lot. So it's good. good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And what are we talking about today? We're talking about The Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon. Yeah, I was trying to think back whether or not we had had repeat authors with different kinds of texts, and I feel like the answer is mostly no, because we've done a couple of Hunger Games, we've done a couple of Harry Potters, but Mm. not a lot of standalone YA authors have multiple texts adapted. The John Green, of course. (gasps) Mr. Green, of course. (laughs) How could I forget? It's almost like I've repressed. (laughs) But no, you're right. It was nice to come to this text because every day, every day, that's the title of the last one we did, right? Correct, yes. I had loved it my first read through, but was disappointed in it on my second read through. Okay. And so this I had also read before. In fact, I think I talked about Sun is Also a Star for homework in season one at some point. You did. Yeah, because I remember that there were a bunch of people who were excited because they thought that we might cover it when the film came out and we just missed our window. So we're playing catch up and getting to it now. Yeah. And I was pleased that this really held up for me anyway to a second reading. I still really enjoyed it. Still definitely cried at the end. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I am okay on both the book and the film. I think I have some issues with the actual structure, like mm. the decision to make this a narrative set over the course of a single day. I don't think does the book or the film any benefit. I think it actually constricts what is possible. So I'm interested to have the chat with you. Mm. I really like it in the book. I was really disappointed by the film. I felt like, and we'll get to it, but I felt like everything that's complex and nuanced about the book's worldview gets flattened out in the film version in a way that I found really disappointing. Yes. I feel like we've talked about a number of times about how conventional Hollywood filmmaking tends to get rid of the interesting things. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's just a bit more shocking to me because this book is really just 
a lot of little things. So when you Mm -hmm. iron that out, all that you're left with, particularly in this case, is some very attractive lead actors and not a lot else. And as you pointed out in a text to me this week, very attractive lead actors with very little chemistry between them. Oh, woof. I haven't seen actors with this little chemistry in a long time. It was brutal. They're trying, but it just isn't there. And And that's a big problem. Funny, because you texted me that while I was in the midst of reading the first kiss scene in the book, Mm -hmm. which is very fireworksy. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want this to get boring in the film. It's really good in the text. And it did. It got very boring in the film. Sadly, Mm -hmm. yes. And interestingly enough, this is also a repeat director for us. So this is, I think, our first repeat female director in Rai Russo-Young. Before I fall, right? Before I fall. Episode four, all the way back in the day. Also a disappointment, if I remember correctly. Uh, We liked the way the film looked and was shot. It was that we had integral issues with the text itself. Yes, yeah. And I will say, I actually like the way this film is shot in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. I like the way New York is treated like a central character because New York yes. is a central character in the book. And I think that's well done, but we'll get to it. I guess I should uh, I should talk to the folks about what this whole thing is all about. Right? <laughs> yeah, dig into that plot for us. Okay, so The Sun is Also a Star is, as Joe has already alluded, it's a novel that's told over sort of multiple perspectives on a single day. And so those two constraints, I think, really shape the concept of the narrative itself. Yes. So our two protagonists are Natasha and Daniel. Natasha is not from New York City. New York City is her home, but she was actually born in Jamaica, which is important because her father has recently been caught. He got a DUI, and when his her father was caught, he confessed to the police that they were actually in the United States illegally. And so when the book opens, we meet Natasha, and we're told immediately that she's being deported at 10 o'clock that night. Yes. So right from the beginning, we have the constraints of the narrative in place. She's mm-hmm. going to be That's... deported at the end of that day. Everything yeah. that happens is going to be what happens over the course of that day. It's a ticking clock. It's a ticking clock. With, I think, really effective use, though, of flashback to explain how the story got to this point. So Mm -hmm. through many flashbacks, we find out about why did her father come to America in the first place? Why did the rest of the family follow? Why did he get that DUI? Why did he confess to the police? We get all of that in like moments of flashback. And the same for Daniel. Daniel is a Korean-American, comes from a Korean-American family. His parents are immigrants he's first generation and so he feels a great deal of pressure from them to fulfill their dreams for him so they want him to become a doctor mm-hmm. he has for most of his life lived in the shadow of his big brother charles who the book makes no bones about the fact that he's a <laughs> <laughs> hey, language <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> which is a facet of the story that i think works a lot better in the book than in the film i believed Charles, the antagonist in the book more than in the movie. So Charles has gone to Harvard and flunked out. And so Daniel's day is framed by the fact that he is about to have his alumni interview for Yale. So he's sort of has to pick up the torch that his brother has dropped. Right. And obviously, Natasha and Daniel's paths intersect. Daniel is a romantic. He wants to be a poet. Natasha is super logical. She's going to become a data scientist, but she's actually really passionate about astronomy and science and the stars. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a series of coincidences, they keep getting thrown back together. And that sort of 
breaks down some of Natasha's armor. She gets to know Daniel. They eventually share a kiss. Um, All of this before he finds out that she is being deported. And uh, yeah, in the end, she is in fact deported, which the first time I read this book, I was like, that's brave. It's a little shocking. Yeah, Yeah, to not have it all work out because there are several moments where you think that sort of an 11th hour solution is going to appear. None of that happens. The book is really fascinated with the idea of coincidence and happenstance. Yes. And how our lives are all intersected. So the lawyer who actually could have possibly made a phone call to argue on her behalf to the judge who issued the voluntary leave order, he's having an affair. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and he's distracted by the affair and doesn't call the judge's office in time, so never actually has that conversation with the judge. Yes, and of course, the fun thing with that story is that they might not have acted on that affair had they not interacted with Natasha, who spurred them to live in the moment and yeah. recognize that when coincidences happen, you should act on them. Which I kind of love, because oftentimes when a book decides to be very, very interested in the idea of fate and the throwing together of people, uh, it's only interested in the ways in which those things have positive repercussions. Right. This book is really interested in both positive and negative repercussions of our interactions with each other. So we are constantly, although the focalized narrative is Natasha and Daniel back and forth for the most part, we are frequently thrown little glimpses into perspectives of like the drunk driver who almost ran Natasha down or Mm -hmm. the security guard at Customs and Immigration who is just desperate for someone to notice that she is a human being and exists. Right. And who turns back up at the end as a flight attendant who reunites them five years in the future. Yeah, which I actually, I mean, the book treads this line between having a realistic ending by the deportation going through and also still being a love story and a romance so they try to stay in touch they fail to because they are young and their lives are unfolding in front of them and then five years later they are reunited on a plane Mm -hmm. i found that version of the coming together um it's always going to be fanciful it's a romance right it's a romantic ending um but i found it worked a lot better in the book than the choices that were made in the film to throw them back together Uh, Interesting. I found the coming back together specifically more successful in the film. It still challenges, like it it stretches credibility in both cases, but the idea of them casually seeing each other on the same flight because of that one woman that Natasha interacted with, I was just like, no, this is one too many pieces for me. I think I just really hated the idea of the poem at the end of the film. Yeah, I don't like the idea that he's working at the cafe that they went to briefly. That also seemed a little bit... Uh... Well, I think in the film it's... Well, and we'll get there. But the, the problem with the film is that it doesn't spend long enough on any of the set pieces for you to no. know which ones actually matter and which ones don't. This is true. Yeah. But yeah, that's basically the plot of the book, I think. Mm-hmm. The aspects that I found most interesting all of which sort of get taken out of the film version, are Natasha's relationship with her father and Daniel's relationship to his parents and the sort of simultaneous experience of love and resentment and guilt that both of them share um, with their relationships with their parents. I found that most compelling in terms of giving them both characters are really kind of rich and interesting backstory and a a sense of their motivations Mm -hmm. that gets basically excised from the film (laughs) and the book is very interested in the idea of an interracial romance in america in this particular moment 
um, against a backdrop of hostility towards immigrants. Like that's kind of a consistent meditation that's going on in the book. And I guess for obvious reasons, the film sort of flattens some of that anxiety. Yeah, I think it paints it in broader strokes, but it's still definitely addressing some of those concerns. For me, one of the things that I struggled with, I really like Nicola Yoon's writing style. Like I, mm-hmm. I find her highly readable. I really enjoyed the interjections, like the way that the plot is constructed with little breakout moments. As you mentioned, you know, we get these brief glimpses of insight into other characters who are informing the story in ways that Natasha and Daniel don't realize. And spaces too, right? Sometimes the focalizer is actually like the geographic space that they're in or like... Mm-hmm a concept, which I found brave and interesting, not always 100% successful, but really worth exploring. Yeah, I liked that. And I agree. I don't know that they always worked for me. At times, it was a little bit too cutesy. And part of that was kind of me being like, okay, is it just because I'm a little bit more of a Natasha at the beginning of the book? (laughs) I'm mildly skeptical. I'm not a huge romantic. So I don't know if some of that was just me resisting the idea. Though I did like the interplay between science and logic versus romance and fate. Mm -hmm. I think for me, as I mentioned off the top, the issue was that there's a bit of a a forced confinement to this Mm -hmm. narrative. So I completely understand that there's a not a cliche, but there's a decision making in some YA text to say, we're going to do this whirlwind thing. And it all takes place in a day or a couple of days or a summer, right? Like it's a Mm -hmm. bit of a bracketing device that you can use to structure your story. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I didn't mind it as a bit of a consideration of how do people come together and make connections over a short amount of time. The problem for me was that too often, those concerns and the romance were eliminating the more interesting storyline about the political drama. Mm. Like, this is a book about deportation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find that it handled the deportation element all that well, because we were too busy having to talk about the coincidences and doing these side plots. And even some of the, and I'm going to stop after this and let you respond, but I'm going to call a little bit of stereotyping, like cliched stereotyping on the backstories, more so Daniel, but of both characters. These are stock narratives that I feel like I've seen before, and this didn't do much new for me. Hmm. So like the idea of Daniel having really overbearing parents who want him to succeed academically because they are immigrants and they want a better life for him and him resisting that and refusing to date a Korean girl and having this brother who's a failed all of that I was like this is very familiar I feel like I've seen this a million times before but Daniel's the one who's more complex in that way right because Daniel's only girlfriend was a Korean girl he is but he's contrasted continually by his relationship to his older brother who is the stereotype Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I do disagree with it entirely from Natasha's perspective. First of all, I think I've only read a handful of stories about undocumented immigration generally. So, Oh no, like I love that part. Yeah. I I didn't get enough of it. The particular complexity of the American dream in the context of her father, like, yes. at what point are you fulfilling the American dream? And at what point are you... (laughs) Just sacrificing your family? Yeah, for your idea. So the, I don't think we said this, but her father wants to be an actor. That's why he's come to New York. Yeah. Came on a traveling visa and stayed. And her mom 
sorry, her mom, brother, and her didn't come at first. It was two years on before her mom was finally like, this is ridiculous. We're coming. And this idea of like her father loves her, but also yeah. profoundly resents having a family yeah. and profoundly resents the idea that his dreams aren't the priority of his wife anymore and mm-hmm. maybe have never been the priority of his kids because that's not how parenting works. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, everything that you're talking about, I loved, but that's also not what this book is about. Hmm. I'm not going to pretend that it's not informing the narrative, but there were so many times where I wanted the book about Natasha's relationship with her father, as Mm. opposed to Natasha running around trying to get meetings with lawyers. And I couldn't help but mourn for the story that I found more compelling that was being tangentially touched upon, as opposed to this forced, like, let's run around New York and try to make things happen in a single day. Hmm. I don't disagree with you because that is what disappointed me about the film. Right. Like, very much. It's unabashedly handled better in the book. Yeah, and I think there's more of it in the book than you're giving credit to. Like, I'm thinking one of my favorite scenes in the book that didn't make it into the movie and I was really disappointed by is when she yells at the guy at immigration services. Right, yeah. Because he's like, why are you so bummed out? You're going to Jamaica. Everything's eerie, mon. Oh (laughs) my goodness. super embarrassing. And in the movie, she's just kind of like, this is my home. This is the only home I've ever known, and it's very pat. Yes. In the book, she's like, hmm, yeah, when you went to Jamaica, did you stay in a resort? Yeah. Did you go into the city, or did you just stay in the resort? Was it because your wife was afraid of going into the city? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. it's why he gives her the lawyer's card, right? Because she kind of dismantles him and his perceptions. So I think those moments are there. I think you're right that the book is more interested in being a romance. And I wonder if that's because Nicola Yoon is more interested in the romance, or if it's because she thought the romance would sell better or someone else, some editor thought the romance would sell better. Entirely possible. I'd be very curious to know whether or not she even had that five years later. Yeah, I would too. Or if it was just, no, this is sometimes all that you get. And I also wonder, I don't want to say that it's autobiographical because obviously it's not, but Nicola Yoon is Jamaican American. She grew up in Brooklyn. She married a Korean American Mm-hmm. graphic designer now author David Yoon and so I wonder how much of the desire to tell that love story is informed by her own life yeah because you're right it absolutely stretches the bounds of logic and reason but I mean every love story does right oh yeah yeah and I'm not suggesting that this book should be punished because it doesn't dare to color outside of those lines a little bit mm. there were just a lot of times where I found myself wishing that it would take that chance as opposed to follow through on the certain line. I think that's fair. I totally think that's fair. It's interesting to to me that you do like this book a fair amount from what I'm hearing, Mm -hmm. because I also kept drawing comparisons to Adam Silvera's They Both Die at the End. I've still not been able to finish that book. It's not dissimilar in the way that it's like a series of coincidences, a kind of doomed love affair that has a ticking time clock at the end of the day, and you get these snapshots of other people that are interacting with the couple as they go. Mm. I mean, it's obviously a different writing style, a different kind of lens that's being drawn upon, but I wonder if it's more of a personal preference. Like, I just don't care for these kinds of things, particularly when you're trying to do a complicated political 
it's undeniable that this book has a political element to it because Mm -hmm. it feels very timely and very relevant both to race as well as uh, relationships between the U.S. and other countries. I think I just wanted so much more of that. Like the piece I loved the most about the book was the history about the wig manufacturing in Korea and why so many Korean Americans end up owning black hair supply stores. Yes, I love that too. Fascinating. And that to me is a perfect example of what's wrong with the film because the book gives you the history. The film also gives you the history. Mm -hmm. But the book gives you the history and frames it with Natasha's perspective on it, which is as much about Korean American communities blocking out Mm-hmm. black american communities from having the ability to earn money in this industry that is about black hair yeah and the film leaves all of that out like it doesn't even gesture towards it no so i agree with you i think the points where the book gets political are where it is strongest and i think that there's a lot to be said for making political conversations very personal Mm-hmm. you can't not care about Natasha's deportation because Natasha herself is, I think, a really magnetic character to read about. And I think her life is interesting. And I think it humanizes and personalizes something that for a lot of people is happening at arm's length. Yes. But I totally agree with you that I could have handled much more of that interesting, complex, nuanced history You know, even just in the way the coming to America story for both families, I also found really compelling and interesting. And the extent to which for Natasha's father, like, was he coming to America or was he trying to escape his family? Yeah, we keep coming back to this because I feel like that is a story that we haven't heard from. Mm -hmm. And it's there lurking on the edges of this book, but it's also not quite the story that Yoon wants to tell. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, uh, a lot of this is me being frustrated. I get it. It's a YA love story that's set within this political bracketing device. But I also, ooh, I just want these other stories so much more. Like, I kept feeling like Daniel just wasn't a good enough foil for Natasha. Natasha is the harder to like character because she is under emotional duress throughout Mm -hmm. the entire book. And part of this is like she's keeping a secret from Daniel for a large portion of it. She's trying to dodge calls from her parents. They want her to come back and accept her fate, and she just staunchly refuses. Mm -hmm. Whereas Daniel is like, he's in a bit of a privileged position that he just doesn't want to deal with, and he makes a case of Natasha as a distraction. And part of me... I don't have the cultural competency to unpack what it must be like to come from a family that has really demanding expectations about your future. Up until you die, I think Daniel even says, like, here's my entire path through Mm -hmm. life. It's already been plotted out. And that's obviously a challenge, but it just sometimes feels like it's getting in the way of that more interesting story that I I almost just wish this was Natasha's story and not a romance at all. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I would still read and like that story. I think Daniel's character is at its most interesting when he is forced to reckon with concepts. So, you know, there's the moment where they're about to go into his dad's store and he tries to take the easy way out at first, right? He's like, Natasha, you just like wait here. (laughs) And then I love the moment where he asks for the do-over 
Yes. Right? Where like he recognizes that that was a mistake and that if she means something to him, then he has to face his parents in a way that mm-hmm. he has never done. Right? Because that's the other thing. And I think I relate to Daniel on a younger sibling level. There's a lot of cultural narratives about what the expectations are of the older sibling. Okay. We less often see the story where the older sibling screws something up and the younger sibling feels like they have to devote their whole life to fixing it. Very true. Yes. <laughs> and that's the part of Daniel's story that I really connected with pretty deeply. Okay. And so I love that moment when he he does better. He asks for the opportunity to do better. And because she wants him make the right decision she Mm -hmm. gives it to him right but yeah a he screws up and fixes it but b he gives her the agency in that moment to forgive or not forgive in a way that i really liked again they cut that scene out of the movie yes they do (laughs) yeah (laughs) which actually maybe is where we should turn our attention yeah since i keep saying about the things they cut out of the movie (laughs) (laughs) what does america mean to you Is final. There's nothing you can do. I'm sorry. But this is my home. New York is my home. 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang created the stars, the planets, the galaxies. Compared to the lifespan of the universe, our lives begin and end in a single day. I'm Daniel. Natasha. We are the stored in What's with the notebooks? Poems. Poems. What are they about? Wait, let me guess. Love. Not all of them. I don't believe in love. So no magic, no fate, no meant to be. What if I told you I could get you to fall in love with me? Just give me a day. An hour. What are your key ingredients to falling in love? My ingredients are friendship, chemistry, the X Factor. What's the X Factor? Don't worry, we've got it. You and I. This isn't going to make me change my mind, Mr. Plaid Thai. Did you just call me Pad Thai? Plaid Thai. My family's from Korea, not Thailand. Well, that is not what I said, so you can stop waiting for an apology. Oh, I'm waiting for something, but not for an apology. What are you so afraid of? Listen, I wasn't born here. What? My family is leaving tomorrow. This is real, and I know you feel it too. Okay, so The Sun is Also a Star is a movie that came out in 2019. As we mentioned, it's directed by Rai Russo-Young, and it was written by Tracy Oliver. And this basically has two stars and then one well-known cameo Mm -hmm. (laughs) as our stunt casting so Mm -hmm. we have yara shahidi and she plays natasha i wasn't familiar with her but i'm assuming you recognize her from blackish and grownish and middleish i have not watched any of those but um oh i'm sorry i thought you had no i would like to at some point no i didn't i didn't wasn't familiar with her work at all i was disappointed by the lack of chemistry between her and Charles, Charles Melton, Melton. Yeah. because I liked both of them Yes, as oh, yeah. individuals. They're also both beautiful. They're nice to look at. Stunningly gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but when you bring them together, 
nothing. Just nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a really big problem, as I said at the beginning, because the film gets rid of a lot of the more nuanced, interesting elements that politicizes the book. So yeah. all we're really left with is a romance in the film. Like, this is unabashedly a straightforward romance with a ticking clock. Yeah. But we have two gorgeous leads and no fireworks. Yep. Also, yeah. he's nine years older than her. <laughs> and he looks it. They both look quite a bit older than they are. She's actually only 19 when she makes this movie. And yet something about the makeup in particular yeah. makes them look like they could be 25 in this film. Yeah, and I think he was. Um, <laughs> no, I, that had an impact on it for me, for sure. It's weird because um, we haven't said, but Charles Melton plays Reggie Mantle on Riverdale. Yes, he's the second Reggie, right? He's the second Reggie. Okay. And he definitely has chemistry with everything in Riverdale. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so I was totally surprised by how flat this felt. Yeah, I don't know... I mean, I think there's some unfortunately major issues with the screenplay. And yeah. it's not just that it's not a great adaptation for what it leaves out. I think in general, it's just not a particularly great screenplay. The film didn't get a ton of positive reviews. People kind of came in at about 50-50 on it. Yeah. They found the two leads very likable, as we've talked about. But they found that it just doesn't really work as a film. It's a shame, too, because this is a breakout role for him, only for Charles Melton, only insofar as this is the first time an Asian American actor has led a teen romance for like a Hollywood A mainstream, film. yeah. Yeah. And that's a big deal because particularly for Asian American men, there has for a long time in Hollywood been this stereotype of sexlessness around. Yep. Asian American masculinity, which is kind of why he's so delightful to watch in Riverdale. But the flip side is that it it's just a real shame. It's a real shame that more magic wasn't created between the two of them in this film because it is such an important role for that reason. Right. Yeah. And one other thing that we would be remiss to overlook, and we actually got an email from friend of the show, Andrew, who when Hi, he saw Andrew. that we were going to cover this, he wanted to bring it to our attention, that the film did receive criticism about its casting with specific regard to colorism. Mm. So in the book, Natasha is very clearly described as dark skinned. Mm -hmm. And of course, Daniel is Korean by birth. Mm -hmm. But in the film, Charles Melton is actually biracial. So he has a white father and then he has a Korean mother. Mm -hmm. And people took exception to the fact that we ended up with a lighter skinned black woman as Natasha. And then we ended up with a biracial Korean American as opposed to Korean. Even though this film did not do well and a lot of people did not actually end up seeing it, there was some criticisms that it's like, can we not spend some time to make sure that we're also getting the accurate representation from the acting community, particularly when so much of the narrative is constructed around their racial identities? Well, that's the thing, right? Colorism is such a significant issue in Hollywood, and it's more complicated than whitewashing. It's this idea of one's proximity to whiteness and mm -hmm. Hollywood's conception of desirability. And so in both cases, yeah, we, we do have an Asian American actor leading teen romance film, 
And it doesn't take away from that particular accomplishment to also acknowledge that an actor who doesn't have that proximity to whiteness might have a harder time being seen as a romantic lead. And and the same for Yara Shahidi. I think colorism is something that we talk about less because we're so eager to see any kind of representation. Absolutely, yeah. But you're right that in the book, particularly Natasha's skin color, the darkness of her father in particular, the darkness Mm -hmm. of her father's skin comes up over and over again as he attempts to become an actor, right? And this idea that like there isn't anyone who will take him seriously as an actor is as much about his Jamaican accent as it is about his skin color, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, all of that is erased from the film entirely. We never know anything about um, her dad works in a kitchen in the film version. We know nothing about him or her mother. No, there's no dream. It's shocking. It's shocking. I think her mother's in maybe two scenes. Maybe if you're be, I think we see her on the phone a couple of times, and yeah. then we see her in person at the end when Natasha finally goes home after she and Daniel spend the, the night? night in a park. What? Which I know. Is, I was really like. Just- I my jaw dropped because I did not understand the impetus for this creative decision. It makes no sense and it comes out of nowhere. Well, it's funny because at the beginning of the movie, you find out that she's going to be deported tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's enough of a change. If you're going to have a constricted timeline, have a constricted timeline. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Like the next morning thing basically gives them the time to spend the night together. Yes. That appears to be all it's for. <laughs> And the fact that it's in a public park, like, again, here's another example of where the film takes the easy way out, right? Um, A black woman and an Asian man spending the night together in a public park in New York City and no one hassles them. No police officer comes by. No one gets, they don't get told to move along. They don't wake up until quarter past seven. Yeah. None of those things do I believe. No. It's very frustrating because it feels like an arbitrary plot point to give the film breathing room to let the connection happen, Mm -hmm. which, as we've also talked about, doesn't happen. No. And there's a shaving off of nearly every substantial interaction. Like, every set piece in the book has a function in terms of either driving the couple together or apart. And the film really takes the easy way out in all of those. So you mentioned that there is no do-over before they go into Daniel's father's store. Mm-hmm. And even the the interaction where in the book, Daniel is the one who breaks the news to her that the deportation lift didn't go through and she will have to leave the country. And in the film, she just randomly bursts into the office so that we can have a fiery outburst. There's just so many little creative decisions that you can see from a filmmaking point of view. Like, yes, this will play more cinematically. This makes more sense. We can shave off that scene. We don't need this anymore. But it really just makes for a film that doesn't work. Yep. Yep. Which, uh, it's almost <laughs> doubly frustrating because, especially as someone who didn't 100% love the book I was like well at least the movie's gonna be able to like do some of these interesting things nope. and so often I was left wanting I was like okay well we get some really gorgeous shots of New York which as you alluded to does play a very significant character in the movie yes the film made me wish I had been a teenager in New York City watching them ride the subway and spending this whole day just out in the world and the mm-hmm. range of experiences they have in like yes. this 
10 hour period I loved that was my favorite I think visual aspect of the film is just seeing the ground that they cover and New York City is so central and the freedom you must feel as a teenager with access to a subway I can't imagine Mm -hmm. yeah I think the other visual element that really worked for me is that Rai Russo Young makes a more deliberate effort to include space yeah literally like planets and they go to the planetarium Mm-hmm. And there was a more deliberate visual recognition of the book's title and the idea that we are all objects hurtling together and sometimes we collide. And I mm-hmm. liked that. I did too. But those moments are slight. They are. They don't make up for everything else that is just not working in this movie. <laughs> I will say I really like the soundtrack of the film. Okay. The book suffers from... the book suffers from what i would say a solid 65 percent of books written in the 2000s like 2010s suffer from ya books which is a 90s soundtrack oh yes 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 because the authors liked 90s music when they were teenagers and so they transposed that onto onto their teenage characters in a way that is kind of incomprehensible so in the book natasha is like obsessed with 90s grunge oh yeah i didn't care for that at all no i didn't like it and we see it so often right like think about all the ya books that we've read that either are set in the 90s or have some substantial connection to like Mm -hmm. 90s early 2000s music yeah it's definitely one of those things, right, where you can see which generation of people is writing the books for. Right, yeah. And we have hit a bunch of those because I think the people who are writing those books are falling within a certain age range and those happen mm-hmm. to be the most marketable books that then get turned into movies and TV shows. Exactly. But in the film version, we have this, I thought, incredible soundtrack. It feels so New York to me. It feels so multicultural. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's... There's rap and there's like Indian inspired music. Yeah. It's got this incredible sort of world music, but feels very young and very fresh. Like, I didn't recognize no. any of the songs on the soundtrack because I'm extremely not cool. <laughs> You're just not New York. That's all. <laughs> but it was a real pleasure. Like, to me, the music brought alive everything that Natasha tells us she loves about New York City. Yes. Which doesn't happen when she's walking around new york city listening to friggin sublime like (laughs) yeah or like the fact that there's a focal interaction that happens around kurt cobain's music in the book yes right it's a bit much it's it always reminds me of when i used to teach my literature class i always taught this one essay by douglas copeland and it's a letter that he writes to kurt cobain after cobain's first suicide attempt okay it's a gorgeous essay But I eventually stopped teaching it because that class would always turn into Brenna Explains the 90s. Right, Because I had, like, as I got older, I taught that essay starting in graduate school. But as I got older, the distance for students between them and their experiences and Kurt Cobain just got further and further and further until the resonances didn't work anymore, right? So, yeah, I definitely have that feeling with a lot of YA. The flip... The flip side of that is that I thought the karaoke scene was so much fun in the book. Yeah. 
I felt like I could really see Daniel letting go. And like, mm-hmm. I imagined cheesy dance moves. Like she talks about how good he is at singing, but I also imagined this sort of theatricality and these cheesy dance moves and this just yeah. desire to impress her and make her laugh that like sheds away any artifice. And in contrasted by the fact that he's wearing a suit and tie throughout exactly. the entire book, right? Exactly. And then in the film, Ugh. That was my least favorite scene. He sings Crimson and Clover, which, which is, is terrible. Slightly it's an awful song incomprehensible. at the best of times. <laughs> I can't imagine anything more unsettling than the fact that he just stares at her and sings it at her. Yeah. <laughs> without moving. I think I turned to Brian at one point <gasps> while he's doing that and was like, he's gorgeous, but I think he might murder her at the yeah. end of this song. <laughs> well, because the lighting is all red in that scene for some reason. And he's just like... He's not singing to her. He is very much singing at her. And she's supposed to be like imagining this whole, which happens in the book, right? In the book, while he's singing, she starts to imagine this idea of a life together because he's completely unmasked in that scene in the book. Like he Mm -hmm. is just, all he wants is for her to smile and laugh and forget about whatever's going on because he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't Mm -hmm. know how big a deal it is, right? And it's fun and it's heartfelt and it's lovely. And then in the movie, he murder sings at her while she inexplicably closes her eyes and imagines their wedding. (laughs) Yeah. It's so bad. It's (laughs) actually very representative of what the film seems to misunderstand about the book. It's really bad because I would argue that that is the most important scene in the book. If the movie needed to nail one moment... (laughs) It was this. Crimson and Clover. Sorry. Oh, he's not a great <laughs> singer either, unfortunately. Oh, no! No, the whole thing about the book is that he can get away with being a total ham because he kills it vocally, right? Yes. Like, he's yeah. impressing her on every single level in that scene. And in the movie, oh, God. Yeah. Well, I think they, they maybe registered that Charles Melton doesn't have great singing chops and maybe tried to give him an easier song that could still work and it just doesn't no it doesn't no No, it doesn't okay (laughs) let's talk about some ya bingo okay i don't have the card open hang up got one job brenna i know it's really quite amazing that i'm always surprised by bingo coming up i'm like ooh, bingo i mean i act like i normally do and that's usually why i just make you go first (laughs) (laughs) okay good this might be our emptiest bingo card ever. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see your shirtless tweets about him. It's real good. I'm not <laughs> I b- mostly just spent like the 90 minutes staring in slack-jawed awe. <laughs> the cheekbones alone. So impressive. All right. Are we doing bingo or what, you old man? I'm just a perv. I apologize. Although he's not at all young, so you're oh, fine. Okay, in that case, I'm justified. So hot, <laughs> so attractive, distractingly attractive. Okay, what have you got for why bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Musicality. Yes, okay. For both versions, I don't like the way music is used in the book, but it's there. It's a central facet, yeah. Uh, perfect date, obviously. Mm-hmm. Stretched over an entire day. Mm-hmm. Um... Like, what else have we got? I've got stunt casting for John Leguizano as the lawyer in the film. Even though I kind of think he's doing a terrible performance. He's not good! I love him normally. And I was like, John Leguizamo, what, what you doing? Because in the book, it's important that he actually wants to help her. And then yep. because of his own vice, he ends up dooming this girl. 
Maybe. Yep. We don't know for sure whether the ruse would have worked, but there's every insinuation that it would have worked had he not given in to his own yep. selfish indulgence. And in the film, it's like, well, we've got John Legomazano, so we can just let him kind of be an arse and not really care. And Natasha's falling over herself, thanking him for, finally, someone cares about me. And I You're just like, didn't what? see it. No, and it doesn't make any sense then that he meets her for coffee afterwards. Yeah. Because it's like, why would you have any relationship with him? Yeah, no, I did not love that. No. Um, I don't know what else to say. I don't know that we have much. Natasha kind of has a sexual awakening with the big kissing scene in the book. This is true. If you put it as a sexual awakening in a way that she didn't think she could have feelings like this so easily yeah. or so deeply. Yeah. Okay. I'll and then, it. I mean, growing apart for the very end. But otherwise, that's it. That's all I got. I mean, even that feels like a bit of a stretch, but sure. Allusions to classic lit? He makes some references to poems? No, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. You're cut okay, off. Fine. So for something that you didn't love, it was not super tropey, my friend. There we go. I Yeah, you know what? I've said my piece. <laughs> All right. So um, if you want to tell joe that he's wrong about this book but right about the movie <laughs> aka if you agree with me wow <laughs> feel free to message joe joe how do they find you on the twitters i am at b still on my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and if you want to talk to both of us you can use the hashtag hkhs pod and for longer stuff including ideas for minisodes keep them coming you can find us at hkhs pod at gmail.com yes so next week we're back on the minisode beat and we've got a special request from friend of the show lucia lorenzi to check out a Netflix show that I had literally never heard of, Brenna, called No Good Nick. Which somehow had two seasons without us who basically only watch YA content on Netflix without it coming across our feeds. Uh, admittedly, when I looked at the trailer, it does seem like it might fall a little bit more into the middle school like, it's not quite YA, but yeah, it's a Netflix series about a grifter teenager who inserts herself into a family and then kind of ends up becoming a part of the family. I'm into it. I'm into it. We're going <laughs> to give it a shot. Apparently, yeah. it's a little bit more complicated than it initially seems, which, as we've talked about numerous times with Netflix TV shows in particular, they don't always have a great trailer. No, it's true. They're not good at cutting trailers for these shows. So no. also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the show intersects with ideas around the foster care system, which is something we've wanted to talk about more on the show anyway, right? Fantastic. Yeah. There we go. And in two weeks, we're going to be back with a full-length episode, and we're going to touch base with an anniversary entry, Brenna. So we're looking at The Diary of a Teenage Girl, which is a, what do we call this, a comic narrative? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a comic. It's a memoir, I think, okay. my understanding is. This book has been on my shelf. I bought it in this amazing comic shop called Gosh Comics in London in 2013. Hmm. So I've been hanging on to this for a while. Yes, you have. It's been a bit of an intimidating read for me because it's quite dense. So I'm grateful for the reason to read it. And I'm looking forward to the film because it was quite critically acclaimed. 
Yeah. So the anniversary in question is for the film, which came out in 2015. The book is by Phoebe Glockner, and that came out in 2002. But I won't lie, I'm actually most excited to check out this film because it's got a pretty good cast. The film was directed by Mariel Heller, and this was her feature debut, but she went on to make two absolutely critically acclaimed, slightly more accessible films, I think, to a broader audience, because they're not way. So she did Can You Ever Forgive Me in 2018, and then last year she did the Fred Rogers sort of biography, but not quite it's actually more about fathers but she did a beautiful day in the neighborhood so she's become quite an acclaimed director and i've been very excited to check out this movie for a while oh cool i'm excited too yeah i did not know any of that so now i'm extra excited Hmm. so that's in two weeks and next week we're going to be checking out no good nick and that's it for us right on okay so until next time i will see you on the page and I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.